You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. And um, uh, let's see, I dress, I don't know what you're dressing up for uh, Halloween, if you're, if you're doing that. Uh, I dressed up as James today. Where's James? Oh, yeah. I don't know if you noticed, but, uh, and someone complimented how his fits better on him. And I agree. Um, Let's go to John chapter five. Uh, We're continuing in the signs of Jesus. We're here at the fourth of seven miraculous signs that Jesus performs uh, that are recorded in uh, the narrative story um, recorded by the apostle John. And here we are in chapter five, starting in verse two, we'll go through 18. John chapter five, starting in verse two. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father's working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. This is God's word. Uh, As I mentioned, this is the fourth sign, the fourth of seven, and here we're introduced uh, so far to three different responses to the ministry and person of Jesus in his life. Uh, We've seen people who have seen what Jesus has done and who he has revealed himself to be, and they are a bit suspicious of his work. They really don't know what to make of what he is doing and the signs that he is performing. We've seen people who have seen what he has done and they worship and obey him. And now today we see people who see what Jesus has done and who he reveals himself to be, and they want to kill him. Three different kinds of people respond to Jesus. And this is true for us too. We can crucify him, we can question him, or we can worship and follow him. Those are the three things that we can do with Jesus. And it's this fourth sign that stirs up this murderous plot to kill Jesus. So if you're wondering, you can do three signs, but it's the fourth that really gets people really frustrated and angry with you. 
The whole passage really hinges on verse four of our passage. I wanna, if you wanna look back down and, and, and let's look at verse four and see what it has to say. You notice anything strange about verse four? It's not there. Look, it goes from verse three right to verse five. Is there a typo in your Bible? It looks like there's a typo in my Bible. What's going on there? In most modern English translations, there's no verse four. Okay, before you call the publisher and figure out what's going on, like there's a verse missing, let me tell you what's going on there. It's not a typo in your Bible. And this is important for what's going on in this passage and the whole context of this passage. The original writings of the Bible authors were copied hundreds and thousands of times. Handwritten copies of the original manuscripts were duplicated. In total, we have over 25,000 handwritten copies of the original letters and, and books of scripture written by the Bible authors. You've probably heard this said that we have more historical evidence for the existence of the historical person of Jesus Christ than we do Julius Caesar. By far, we have much more written evidence of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he claims to do. And through this very particular and scientific process, biblical scholars attempt to reconstruct what was written thousands of years ago based on the manuscripts and partial manuscripts that we have today. And the most reliable manuscripts are gonna be the ones that are closest to their original date of writing, ones that are circulated the most and circulated most broadly to the churches and people around the world. And the earliest and most widely circulated manuscripts that are considered the most reliable do not contain verse four. What's going on there? At some point, it's possible that, that verse four was put in later as a, a, a scribal edition, but with confidence, we cannot say that this was written by the apostle John, that, that verse four was not written. So maybe, maybe you're thinking, well, I didn't know I was getting a history lesson today when I was coming to church, but you are. And in fact, every time we open up the Bible, we are getting a history lesson, why? because these are the retellings of the historical person and work of Jesus Christ. It is reliable and trustworthy. It is God's story that has been, that has been preserved and transmitted uh, throughout generations for us. And John tells us why is it preserved? Why does he tell this story? So that we would know Jesus and believe in him and anyone who believes in him would have life in his name. So what does verse four say? Are you curious? Okay, let's put it up here. Verse four, this is what it says. Some later manuscripts say this. It provides some good historical context for our reading today. Now in these uh, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. That's where our verse three ends. And verse four starts holy or in part, waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Picture this interesting scene. There is in this pool, by this pool in Jerusalem, five covered colonnades and all along the pool deck and all along the shade, there are multitudes covering the decks and covering the shaded areas, multitudes of people suffering from various physical disabilities. And there appears to be 
some well-known mythological or popular suspicion of the time that at, at, un- at particular times, the water would stir in a particular way. And the first person to get up and run into that water was healed of their disability. And so the crowds of people who are disabled have gathered for this. These pools were, fu- were uh, f- uh, fueled by uh, natural aquifers. So there was a, a natural water that was running through there. And there was this popular theory at the time that there was this angel occasionally would, would dip into the water and anyone who came in, the, only the first one though, the first one got healed. And if you were second, you had to go back and wait for the next one. That's the rumor. So that's the rumor of what we have. We don't know if that's true. We don't know if that's actually what happened, but it appears to be this common myth of the time. This is the wishing well of all wishing wells. This pool was, is the wishing well of all wishing wells. Do you ever go by a fountain and just toss in a corner, quarter, like, just in case? <laughs> oh, this is, you know, this is just, you see that? I mean, they gather at all these fountains around town, they gather just hundreds of dollars, probably weekly, of just coins. Why do people do that? Just in case. Suspicion? Mythology? It doesn't hurt just to wish for something. That's, that's kind of what people do. People visit natural hot springs around Arizona and other places around the, our country and world for therapeutic reasons. I was in Sedona just a couple weeks ago. People will do just about anything to find a little bit of relief from a world that is filled with trouble. Just go, go to Sedona and you'll see all the, the multitude of things that people will, will give themselves to in energy and superstitions and mythologies just to feel a little bit better sense of hope for what they are going through in their life. You know, last week, someone asked you, buy a, you buy a Powerball ticket? And I, I said, no, why would I do that? And they said, it's $600 million. And I was like, so? And she said, you can't win if you don't play. You know, and I looked at her just with like the most serious eyes and I said, that's a really good point. <laughs> and I went and bought a lottery ticket. And, <laughs> Through my, just in case, just in case you don't know, cure all of my problems. Listen, in a world, I didn't win. Listen, in a world, in a world filled with brokenness, we are tempted to look for relief in anything that remotely resembles a Band-Aid. We're, we're, we're constantly scanning we're the world. We're constantly scanning our environment. We're constantly scanning what the world can provide for us so that, to think, will this give me some comfort? Will this give me some relief? Will this give me some hope? And I'll just take anything right now. I'll try anything. There's a desperate hopelessness of these people who suffer that have gathered to the water just to try, just to be, actually, we did win. It was, a four, it was $4. They had one in 64. So I did win. I split it with somebody, though. Um, There's a promise. If we win, we split 50%. So I, I got $2. So anyway, we'll try anything. Is if you don't win, if, if you can't win if you don't play. And you can't get a chance at healing if, if you're not there at the pool. And so they're giving their time to us. They'll try anything. And along comes Jesus. This is the, 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 the story just abruptly transitions. And here comes Jesus. Have you noticed, I hope you're starting to, be, to begin to pick up 
the way that Jesus is presented to us in the scriptures, particularly in the narrative stories. We see, here are the despairing, and along comes Jesus. Here are the isolated and friendless, and along comes Jesus. Here are the anxious, and along comes Jesus. Here are the weak and the worried and the disabled and the, and the confused and the suffering, and along comes Jesus. That is the pattern of how Jesus is presented to us. By acknowledging our desperate need and acknowledging how we scan the earth and the world for comfort in any way, and that continually leads us into a pattern of continually searching for something, and along comes Jesus. Jesus moves towards the hurting. He moves towards the isolated, the anxious. He moves towards the suffering and the weak and the confused. He moves towards all of these kinds of people. He moves towards the hurting. Hold that thought. And then he seeks out this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. By anyone's measurement, this is an extremely long time to suffer. An extremely long time to suffer. The first thing Jesus says to this man is, do you want to get well? And this is, you can add this to the long list of, uh, of <laughs> strange questions Jesus asks. Jesus, and we, we are told Jesus knew this man's situation, that he is suffering for 38 years, probably in a lot of pain uh, he, and, and isolation and hopelessness. And Jesus says, do you want to get better? No, Jesus. The first thing he says is, do you want to get well? And of course he wants to get well. How should we take this question? I think it's good to pause here for a second because this, when Jesus asks a question, it, the, the author is telling us this is where we should really focus. This is, a, this is a place we should pause and consider for ourselves. Do you want to get well? Some would say that this question means that Jesus wants us to know that if we want healing and if we want wholeness, and if we, we want transformation in our life, then he will give it to us. But we just need to, we need to want it bad enough. We need to want it bad enough. Do you, just, you just really, really need it. You really need to want it. You really need to dig down hard and, and, and really get some, enough desire. There's so many people that I've encountered throughout my life who live in this constant psychological despairing wanting some struggle in their life to, to come, uh, find relief to some struggle. They want to get better and they think that they continue to struggle because they just don't have enough faith, enough belief. And if they just believed a little bit more and tried a little bit more and wanted it a little bit more badly, then they would get it. If only they could find some deeper desire, then they would be healed from all that they suffer from. But this is, we have a problem with that for a couple reasons. One, it would mean that God, God's blessing comes to those on the basis of our measure of desire rather than on the measure of his power and righteousness. The power of God's love for us is not contingent on the quality of our faith or the strength of our desire. 
It comes to us based on his mercy, grace, plan for us, his perfect love and righteousness for us. He seeks us out. We are told that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we will be saved. We see the opposite throughout the gospel story, that it's those who have the most immature faith, that those who have the most basic belief, that those who are in the most desperate state that just cry out to Jesus for help. It's so flawed, their faith is flawed, their belief is inconsistent at times, but their heart is longing for God's mercy and he gives it to them. We have another problem. Second, what, G, what John, do, he doesn't develop this theme at all throughout his story, that if we just have more faith or more belief, then he will heal us. But what he does develop is something that we need to pay attention to, and that is healing, true healing, is found in the good news of the gospel that Jesus is constantly offering him to, uh, to others all the time. When Jesus comes up to this man and says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? He is not saying, just dig down deep and you got it. Jesus is saying, you are suffering in your life and I am presenting myself to you as the one who can make you better. You've been longing and looking your whole life and scanning all of the world for relief to your discomfort. And now I stand before you as the one who can actually give it. Jesus moves towards the hurting. Why? Not just to help the hurting, not just to give them comfort where they're struggling, but to present himself to the hurting as the only one who can give true and lasting transformation. He, he, he presents himself to the hurting as to say, I am what you've been looking for your entire life. This was behind Jesus' question, do you want to be healed? He says, because your hope is aimed at that water. I've been watching you and I know your heart. Your hope is aimed at that water. And it's in others or it's aimed at others. Remember this, this guy says, well, there's no one will help me, right? So not only has he been disabled for 38 years, he has no one in his life who cares about him enough to give him that chance to get down to the water first. He says, no one will help me. And when the water is stirred, someone else goes down there before me. And, and so he says, my hope is either in the water, my hope is in other people to help me. And Jesus says, but I stand before you now as the giver of life. Jesus does this so many times throughout uh, his, his ministry. Uh, you remember in John chapter four, where he says to the woman, he says, are you thirsty? I am, I can give you living water. Remember to the crowds, he says, are you hungry? I am the bread of life. And Jesus does it here with this disabled man. Do you want to be healed? I am true healing. He does this throughout his entire ministry. He sees the suffering of people and the longing of their hearts. And he says, I am the answer to all that you long for. Jesus presents himself continually as the ultimate answer to the problems outside of us and the problems within us. The problems outside of us that we have little to no control over and the problems within us that, that plague us constantly are issues of our sins. And immediately Jesus says, get up, 
take up your bed and walk. And the man obeys instantly. And in an instant, 38 years of frustration and pain and despair and hopelessness is wiped away. For the first time in 38 years, blood is rushed to his limbs and gives strength to his joints and his muscles and his ligaments and his body as a a creation of Christ responds in obedience to the power of his word. It's a beautiful thing, but we are not, we're not given permission to linger in this beauty for long because immediately a problem comes back in. We hear this ominous sentence. We see this ominous sentence, the signal for trouble for Jesus. Here is the point of no return for Jesus' ministry. Here is what starts this murderous plot to kill Jesus. It is the Sabbath. Okay, so what? Breaking God's law is an offense punishable by death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the Jews learned this lesson the hard way. They were exiled away from their home because as a form of punishment, long time before this, because they did not keep the Sabbath. They did not keep the Sabbath holy. They did not honor God and worship him on the Sabbath. They did not obey his command. And so God punished them for generations. He punished them because of this. And so when God blessed them and they came back to their homeland, they said, okay, we're gonna do this differently this time. We're going to obey the Sabbath. And if God cares about the Sabbath, let's add a bunch more laws about the Sabbath just for good measure. Does anyone know in the Bible where it says, where God tells his people that it's unlawful for a paralyzed man to pick up their bed and walk? Find it, verse, chapter and verse. No, it doesn't exist, right? So why are the Jews giving this law if God didn't say it? Well, because historically the Jews had uh, experienced so much of God's punishment because of their failure to obey his word And they said, we need to do it right this time. So they came up with 39 different ways that they weren't going to work on the Sabbath because God had forbidden work on the Sabbath. For instance, you you could not carry a threading needle that had a thread through the needle, the eye of the needle in your pocket on the Sabbath because it implied that you were sewing something and that was work. And the 39th of these 39 rules uh, were you could not carry one object from a stationary place to another place, like a a bed or a mat. And so the Jews on the Sabbath, they see this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, and they know this man. And they see him walking with his mat. And instead of saying, you can walk, they say, what do you think you're doing? Walking around here? carrying that mat. They were so distracted by their own sense of self-righteousness that a man healed after 38 years of being paralyzed. The thing that they notice is that he's carrying a mat, not that he's walking. And instead of responding to this miracle with joy and praise to God, they say to him, why are you carrying your bed? They were so caught up in their own obedience and the disobedience of others, that they were incapable of seeing a desperate man who needed to be rescued from his suffering. See, the hearts, here's where I wanna bring these two stories together between the man and the Jews. 
their hearts, the hearts of, their, of the Jews were no less paralyzed than the legs of this disabled man. This, is, this presents here, I think, an important concept for us that, that John, the writer of this, wants us to see. It is easier to see the misplaced faith of the disabled man in the magical properties of the water than to recognize the misplaced faith of the Jews in their own righteousness. It is so easy to look at this story and to think of this disabled man and say, you're trusting in the wrong thing. You're trusting in the wrong thing. You're trusting in the wrong thing. Just put your trust in Jesus and to neglect the sin of, the, of these Jews that are placing their righteousness, uh, their hope in their own obedience and righteousness. They both suffered from the same disease that needed healing. They both looked for more of something to be made well. More getting into the water, more friends to help me, more obedience, more precision in my theology, more desire, more faith, more hope, more courage. And if I just simply get or do more of this stuff, then I will find hope in the midst of my suffering. What, what is your more? What is it that you were longing for that if I just had more of this, then I would feel more comfort in my life? If I had more of this, I would feel more accepted by God. If you don't know what your more is, then think about this. What really frustrates you about the sins of other people? What sins of other people really, really bother you? What do you hate about other people? that may put a finger on what you value most about your own righteousness. Verse 14, Jesus finds this man again and says, hey, look, you're doing great. Look at you doing well, walking around. Don't sin anymore or something worse will happen to you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> How do you like that for a warning? You're like that, they're hugging each other. Yeah, this is so great. Be careful. If you sin again, something worse is going to happen. It's terrifying. Many Christians are uncomfortable with the, when the Bible offers a warning, especially a warning like this, especially something that's mysterious that says, stop sinning or else. You know, in many places in scripture, even the words of Jesus himself, we are told to be careful to say that suffering is a result of personal sin. And we're even told to, by Jesus to not say that, that physical suffering or disability is the result of our sin. Because God has other things going on. There's other factors involved that we don't understand. But in this instance, it seems to be that this man's suffering was the result of his personal sin. Something he had done 38 years prior, some rebellion, some disobedience, some lifestyle of disobedience against God led him to this place of 38 years of suffering Maybe it was his sinful appetites or his lifestyle that made him more risk, more at risk for this paralyzing injury of some sort. We really don't know. We don't know the sin, but we do know that there's something worse that could have happened. What could possibly be worse than 38 years of paralyzed isolation and earthly suffering? Maybe having to bear the weight of your own sin for all eternity. 
You know, see, here we see the ultimate purpose of Jesus' healing. And that is to reveal that there are two types of sinners of which he offers rescue for both. There are two types of sinners and ultimately he is the hope that brings healing to both kinds of sinners. What are those two types of sinners? There's the disabled man that, that represents one kind of sinner. These are the kind of sinners that are easier to spot. The kind of people that do things that we think are bad. Those are the people that we might label bad people, right? They're the ones that maybe live uh, in disobedience and open rebellion against God, and then they reap the consequences of their sin in their life. This man knows his sin. He knows why he was paralyzed. He knows what got him in that place and probably alienated people from his life. He had no one in his life. And he's like, I get it, man. I know why I'm here. This is my fault, There are sinners like that. And then there are the Jews who represent another kind of sinner. These are the sinners who don't know they're sinners. In fact, they're the ones who seem to be very good at being good. They're the ones that we, they're like, have a great resume for working in a church. These are the ones that we would trust with our children and our finances. These are the ones that that we would promote in the office because they're just good moral, upright people. And they point out all the bad things that everyone else does. What are these people like? <clears throat> and one day, a few months ago, I get a letter. Well, well first, I, I was driving along Tangerine. It was a beautiful day, so I thought I would open up the windows. I opened up the windows. I had some papers sitting on my front seat of my car. Right when I open up the windows, some papers fly out. And I'm, like try, you know, I'm trying to get everything, and I'm like, ah, it's no hope, you know, it's gone. And so they all fly out, right? And I'm like, oh man, I'll never get those back. A week later, I get a letter from the Marana Police Department. <clears throat> and it says, you have been reported uh, for littering. <laughs> okay, all right. Someone driving behind me saw papers fly out my window. And they uh, methodically wrote down my license plate. Oh, I gotta get this guy, I gotta get this guy. They wrote that, and then they went home and Googled reporting littering. <clears throat> and then they filled out a form online on the Marana Police Department website to report littering. And then they pressed send. And then they felt good about it. And then I get a letter saying, don't litter, it's illegal. I gotta report this transgression to the proper authorities. <clears throat> I wanted to be the first kind of sinner when I got that letter, okay? I wanted to be that one that just wanted, this is ridiculous, this is the second kind of sinner, okay? The one who says, I am so good, I would never do that, and I need to point out all the bad things that other people do. And God loves me for it. Jesus confronts them both, and he says, you're both diseased. You're both diseased. Jesus has no intention of leaving this it wasn't any of you, was it? Like you didn't see, like that's really, okay. Man, it's, I'm so angry still. Okay, Jesus has no intention of leaving this man with a healed body and a broken soul. And Jesus has no intention of leaving the Jews with a false sense of faith in their own righteousness. He confronts both, And he offers himself to both of them as their only hope and answer. 
And one group of people, the good people, want to kill him for it. Because they are so consumed with their own false sense of righteousness, they could not see their own disease. The gospel has nothing to do with developing a moral character that we give to God. The gospel has nothing to do with our ability to fail less so that God will love us more. Jesus has a greater intention with them. He has a greater intention with you and I. And that is for both of these kinds of sinners to turn from their misplaced faith, either in superstitious healings or, or, or the, 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 the comforts and pleasures of the world or their own sense of righteousness and turn to rely on Jesus' record alone for a relationship with God. His pure grace, his mercy, his perfect righteousness. And when we do that, we live differently. When we do that, we obey his commands. When we do that, we are given a new heart that wants to live differently. So when Jesus comes and warns this man, he says, the, the worst thing than being paralyzed for 38 years is to not know me. There's nothing worse than to be isolated from me. And we are told over and over and over again, the, how do we find this blessing? How do we come to this blessing? John tells us it is to believe in the one God has sent to die for our sins, who has been given to us for our healing. And this means that if you think that there's something that you can offer God, some moral character that you've developed over time, there's a warning to you, there's something worse coming if you are just resting in your own righteousness. But he also wants you to know if you are living with the consequences of your own sins your whole entire life, you can be healed. You can be freed from the curse of that sin that alienates us from God, that punishes us for our sins, and you could be called, instead, you can be called a child of God, adopted into his family. And there'll never be a time when you don't know his love. No one is too far off. We will obey his commands. We will grow in faith. We will trust him with our whole heart and our whole life. There's a point where this man did not know Jesus and Jesus continues to present himself to him as who he is. And then there's this point where this man knows Jesus and knows what he has done. Are you scanning the world? Are you scanning your life? Are you scanning your environment for the things that will just, just in case give you that relief? Jesus stands before you. He asks you if you, will be, if you desire to be well and he gives himself for you. Trust in him. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.